It's great. Here, this song was written by William Cooper. He struggled with his own faith. He, he wasn't sure if he was saved, and he, he struggled with that. And, and his um, mentor, John Newton, who, by the way, wrote Amazing Grace, <laughs> encouraged him to write down the truth that he did know in him, which Cooper did. And there's several that we have with us, and that's certainly one. And I appreciate it. Great truths, and sometimes you have to think upon these things, these great truths of Scripture, because you may struggle from time to time, and these hymns can help for sure. This morning, I want us to look at John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We're going to consider the betrayal of Jesus by none other than Judas. This is introduced to us at verse 18 in this chapter, going through verse 30. The actual betrayal itself is going to be recorded in chapter 18, but this is kind of a precursor as to what leads up to it. And remember the section that we're in, chapter 13 through 17, is a shift in the ministry of Jesus. It is now focused privately to his own disciples. He has private instructions to give them. There are valuable lessons for them to to learn. There are valuable lessons for us to learn. As his disciples would gather around the hearing of his word, the word that is before you today, let us learn some of these lessons from this betrayal of Jesus by Judas. R.C. Sproul would comment on this event. He says, Judas' betrayal of the Savior is the most wicked deed ever committed. It warns us to be careful lest sin take a hold of our hearts and make us turn our backs on Christ. He adds, though, correctly, so those who truly know Jesus will not finally betray him. But it is possible for even for Christians to become disenchanted with the way God works out his plan and fall into many transgressions. The setting for this narrative here is in the upper room. We call it the upper room discourse, as we introduced last week. Jesus has gathered together his closest disciples, the twelve, to give them final instructions on the eve of his death on the cross. Tonight, in this meeting... He will change the meaning of the Passover elements as they receive them. He will pull out the bread and say, This will represent my body from now on. And the cup, this will represent the blood of the covenant shed for you. A notable follower of some sort of Jesus is there, whose name is Judas Iscariot. His name after this evening will forever live in infamy. 
We're reminded of this pending evil in verse 2 of this chapter. It says, during the supper, when, and John notes for us, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Judas is a name, by the way, that any Jewish mother would have been proud to call her son at that time. Judas is from Judah. It means praise. It would have been a common Jewish name, and hence the further description of who this Judas was is, is added. It says he is Iscariot. This is a Greek rendering of the word Kerioth, most likely the city in a province of Judah surrounding Jerusalem. He's further identified, note here, as Simon's son. They all knew who he was, but they wanted to make sure everyone else did and distinguished him from the other Judas in that area. From all outward appearances, Judas would have been thought of as a very respected disciple. All the other disciples, by the way, that were gathered in that upper room were from Galilee. They would have been, you know, country folk. (laughs) Judas was the city guy. He was the one that was cultured and educated. He would have been thought of in a more prestigious light. And by the way, as you know, he carried the money bag for them, as we learned earlier. Matthew was a disciple. Why he was a tax collector, why would he not carry the bag and keep up with that? He was used to handling money. I think this shows how much credibility Judas had to the other disciples, that they would trust him and make him responsible. He came across as someone that was very reliable. He was in the inner circle of Jesus, was he not? He was at the table with the others even at this time. And I can assure you that night, no one gave him a second glance except Jesus. Jesus knew what was in his heart. He has known all along. In chapter 6, John will record for us that very thing where Jesus had taught them, and perhaps they weren't listening all that well. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? John reminds us he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus, in great humility in this upper room with these twelve gathered around one who is Judas Iscariot, Jesus washes their feet. He even washes, yes, his enemy, the one who would betray him, Judas. I said last week, really, this demonstrates the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is a sense in which he would love his enemies. And he gives his common grace even to his traitor, his betrayer, Judas. This washing of the disciples' feet, as we discussed last week, was 
really a, a genuine practical need that they had. And Jesus fulfills this need for the disciples to emulate, for them to do something similar. Notice verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. The idea wasn't to get some sort of ceremony going on, a bucket in church to dip people's feet into, which only had a ceremonial benefit. No, there was a real practical benefit. It's not a ceremony. The idea is to serve one another. Do the dishes. <laughs> the laundry. Okay, I better stop before I get in trouble. The idea is to help and to care and to sacrifice and to serve one another. And Jesus did a practical thing. In fact, one of the various lowliest things. But it, it has more than that. Certainly that is there. There's an example of loving his disciples. Even providing common grace and help to his enemies. But beyond that, notice verse 6 of the same chapter. I'm giving you the background here. That this also has a spiritual implication. He's doing this illustratively in this way. Simon Peter comes to him. When he came to Simon Peter, Simon said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He, he seems to be the only one that recognizes what's going on here. Or he's just one who's not afraid to speak up. Jesus' answer, verse 7, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. There is more than this practical service. Practical service was there, for sure, but he said this is something more. Well, then Peter's response, which again, this is a guy with a foot-shaped mouth. He says, you should never wash my feet, and Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you shall have no share with me. That's what it's illustrating. Simon then says, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, he's saying, I'm all in. I'm there. Jesus said to him, the one who, and this is the spiritual connection that he's doing in an illustrative fashion. He says, the one who is bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That is why he said not all of you are clean. You see? There's a spiritual illustration going on with washing the feet. MacArthur comments on this. He says that the cleansing that Christ does at salvation never needs to be repeated. Atonement is complete at that point. But all who have been cleansed by God's gracious justification need constant washing in the experiential sense as they battle the flesh. And that's important to know. The Apostle John would comment in his epistle in 1 John and verse 7 this way to describe this concept. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's the state of a Christian. 
walking in the light, having fellowship with one another, recognizing that the blood of Christ, that it is the blood of Christ and Christ alone that will cleanse us from sin. But then he goes on to say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You get the picture. If you walk about in the world, as they might have done in the actual physical world, their feet would have gotten dirty. Needed to have that constant cleansing to renew the fellowship. The basis of the fellowship is the cleansing of Christ, which never has to be repeated. But the stain of sin can cling to us in this life. We continually battle the flesh as it were. And that sin must be confessed on a daily basis, on a regular basis. If you've not been washed in the reality of the blood of Jesus, all of the rituals, however, that you participate in and that you practice will have no spiritual significance whatsoever. There was one who was at this table who had his feet washed and it had no effect. You know his name, Judas. Jesus is now ready to teach his disciples and us who would follow Christ a few lessons concerning this betrayal. Let's look at verse 18 in our text. John 13, verse 18. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled he who, get, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table's side, at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? So Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. 
So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. Let us pray. Father, I pray that we will hear and heed the lessons Christ has for us this day. May we truly grow in grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray in his name. Amen. Now remember, beloved, this particular account here is written for believers. The previous 12 chapters had really focused on Jesus' public ministry, a ministry to unbelievers, to call people to the gospel. His focus now is on training his disciples, those that are in his inner circle, so that they would be able to train others who would be disciples of Christ, or as we might describe them today, as Christians. And in that sense, this is certainly for you. We would do well to learn these lessons from Judas's betrayal. And there are many here. I'm just going to point out four. And from those four, there'll be many applications, some of which you will make on your own. Notice the first one in verse 18. Jesus brings about a teaching to his disciples to prepare them of emphasizing the distinction in his love. Notice verse 18. He says, I'm not speaking to all of you. So there is a distinction that is made. This, I'm not speaking to all of you, this refers back to verse 17. If you know these things, verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. It is the duty of all mankind to do justly, to do right, to display the love of God certainly towards one another. However, doing them in and of themselves is not going to bring about blessing. It will not bring about merit, your righteous deeds. The prophet Isaiah put it this way in describing the righteous deeds that we have done. When he says, we're all unclean, Isaiah 64, 6. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. The stain of sin soils the purest garment. It is as if you have something on your hand and when you pick something up, it just stains it. It marks it. This is the stain of sin. He says, not all of you. The you in, in question here is the redeemed. There are instructions that are given by our Lord was not to all. It was instead to those who he has chosen. He says, I know, verse 18, the ones whom I have chosen. This is chosen here in a distinct way. There is a sense in which he chose them all because they're all in that room. Remember? 670 of John, I alluded to it earlier. Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is the devil? So there's a sense in which he chose the twelve to be there. 
But here he's talking about another sense of chosen, and that is a distinctive way, a sense in which Judas was not chosen. That is, he was not chosen redemptively. He was not given that favor. Jesus was chosen, I mean Judas, so to say, was chosen and afforded the very love of Christ in a common way. He was graciously allowed to gather with the saints in the same room. He was allowed to hear what Christ would teach to his saints. He was given a front row seat to all that went on. He got to see the miracles. He got to see the teaching. He got to see the perfections of the righteous life of Christ. Can you imagine what grace that would be to be called to be in that inner circle and see the working of God in Christ Jesus in that? If anybody had an opportunity then to evaluate what was going on and because just those circumstances would indeed repent... It would be Judas. He had the opportunity. The opportunity was lost. Without a direct intervention, a divine intervention, a miraculous intervention where Jesus would change the heart of Judas, Judas, even in the best of circumstances, and he was, would remain in his rebellion. And he would ultimately demonstrate his treachery, which indeed he does. It's a great lesson that he gives to the disciples. And the reason they have a heart for Christ is not because they were afforded all these great opportunities. It is because of the grace of Jesus Christ that works in his heart. Paul would describe it this way, for by grace you're saved, through faith. It's not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. It isn't the result of works. And by the way, if it was, then you would have something to boast about. Doing good works will not bring about a change in heart, not for anyone and Judas is a good example of that. John will explain how someone has a change of heart. He calls it a new birth. Being born again, as Jesus would say to Nicodemus. A new birth. A birth that is from above. John would explain in John 1 13, that those who did receive him, those who believed in his name, those who truly were children of God, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God's miraculous work. And the new birth would come about solely by the will of God. And so Jesus makes a distinction here in his love. For those that he chooses redemptively. In John 15, 
In verse 16, Jesus would explain to his disciples once again, and we'll get to that in a bit. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. This blessedness is not for everyone. Blessed if you do them, verse 17. It is not for Judas. It is for his chosen. So he gives a distinction in his love and he teaches his disciples that and Judas is a great example of that. In the inner circle, afforded all of the opportunities and yet without the work of Christ in his heart, he will soon betray him. The second lesson that Jesus gives to his disciples is found in verse 19. And that's where Jesus once again, as if we didn't need to know it, but perhaps we do, he reminds them of his divinity, of his absolute sovereignty of what is going on. In verse 19, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. In verse 18, he states here that this is going to happen because it needs to fulfill Scripture. Again, Jesus is orchestrating all things for his glory, including this betrayal of Judas, which fulfills Scripture written way before. He's quoting actually Psalm 41. And you can look it up later if you wish or turn to it. doesn't matter. I'm not going through the whole psalm. But if you were to read Psalm 41, you'll find this phrase that he quotes here in verse 18, that uh, even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, if you're reading Psalm 41, you'll find out that it's about David. In fact... Henry gave us a good background to what a messianic psalm is in his reading of his Psalm 22 this morning. The idea here is, yes, this is written about David, Psalm 41, and David's experiences, but it is done to point to someone greater, and that is Christ We know through the revelatory word of God that indeed it is. For David, he could cry out in Psalm 41, Lord, be gracious to me and heal me for I have sinned. That refers to David himself. But in verse 9 when he says, The friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread and lifted his heel up against me, it did happen to David, but yet it was pointing to Christ. We call that a type. Whereas Christ is the fulfillment of it and hence the antitype. This is the hermeneutic, by the way, that you must keep in mind as you read all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Ultimately, all of it from the beginning to the end, it points to one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus reminds his disciples of that even in this event. 
It isn't ultimately about David, it is about Christ. In John chapter 5, he would instruct the Pharisees and tell them, if you believe Moses, which they claim to do, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his words, how would you believe mine? In John chapter 12 and verse 41, if you remember a few weeks ago, as he quotes Isaiah, who in Isaiah talks about getting a vision of the Lord, holy, holy, holy. John 12, 41, Jesus would say, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory did he see? The glory of Jesus Christ. And so whether it was Moses or Isaiah, they all spoke of Christ. You remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Luke records for us in 24, 27 of his gospel. He would teach those people about himself and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself the point of the scripture is Jesus Christ that's who it points to he is indeed the word of God incarnate and John begins his gospel that way doesn't he in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. King David here in this psalm is what we call a type in Christ, as I said, is the fulfillment, the anti-type. The lesser David, from him came the greater Jesus Christ, who is indeed the King of kings, Lord of lords, and whose kingdom is absolute righteousness and will reign forever and ever. David is a shadow of the reality of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the substance who fulfills all of that, who is the one to come. David is the imperfect type and illustration. He isn't the perfect reality Jesus Christ is. There are some things that imperfectly then point to the Messiah in this psalm. And we're given a divine exegesis here at this point. David had a number of traitors against him. And probably this one in Psalm 41 refers to Ahithophel who was his closest advisor. Who eventually sided with his own, David's own son Absalom in treachery against him. All of that pointed a thousand years before to as a shadow of what would happen with Christ. Someone who is his, in his inner circle and trusted group would turn against him. Jesus is going to tell his disciples about this and make it known. He's already taught them this. But here at this final supper with them on the eve of his death, he tells them one more time, and why would he want them to know that? What is essential for them to know? And what is essential for you to know? It says in our text that I, so that you will know that I am he, verse 19, when it takes place. And by the way, I don't prefer that translation, I am he. 
We add the word he because in English that helps us a little bit to figure out what's going on. But in Greek it's simply ego me. It would be translated I am. And to any Jewish person at that time, they would understand in trying to describe God, how could you describe him? Whatever you said about him would be short of who he actually is. If you listed all of his attributes that you knew of, you wouldn't say enough of them. And when you try to talk about some of them, how how do we do do it? Well, we say he's all-powerful, right? He's all-knowledgeable, omniscient omnipotent, and all these kinds of things. Even that, whatever, it can't qualify or quantitate all it is. And so in a simple statement, here's what we can say about God. I am. And Jesus says this, so that you will know this. You understand who Jesus is, and for them, who he is, he is God. Some will mock him, no doubt, in days to come. Concerning Judas, an insider who betrayed him. You'll hear it all the time in politics, won't you? Somebody that worked for a particular administration leaves the administration and then they write this nasty book about them. They become the traitor and it's very salacious. It, it, it mars the person who they betrayed to some degree, whether you like them or dislike either one, it doesn't matter, you get the feeling. That's what's going on. Well, I think that's what's going on here. They might have mocked and said, well, didn't Jesus know? He picked him. Surely he would know what character Judas was. No one else knew what character Judas was. They gave him the money They trusted him above all things. And in our text as we unfold, they still don't get it even at this supper when Jesus points them out. But John remembers, and he records in verse 19, so that we would know Jesus wasn't fooled. He wasn't tricked. On the contrary, he was the only, he is the only wise God. And he demonstrates his sovereign providence in orchestrating all of these events, including his betrayal. And he doesn't force Judas to betray him. He doesn't twist his arm. He isn't hateful and mean to him. On the eve of his betrayal, he's washing his feet. He has great compassion and love for him. And yet... He will accomplish his divine purpose, his mission. Peter knows that he's at this table. He he is learning from Jesus, but, but what Jesus is doing, he didn't really fully know then. But after the fact, then he knows, and you hear him preach in Acts chapter 2 about this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus is Lord. He is always Lord. And it is essential for a disciple, a follower of Christ, a Christian, to know that Jesus Christ is God Almighty. He is not a 
for another prophet. He is not another messenger in an angelic form. He is not an exalted man. He is the creator of heaven and earth and sustainer of all things. I quoted John 1, 3. All things were made through him. Everything was made by Jesus Christ. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. It is Jesus Christ who sustains life. The reason you're breathing, you're created, and then you're breathing right now is because of Jesus Christ. Every minute, every moment is in the hands of Jesus Christ. Do you believe him? Do you know that he is the I am? Jesus Christ graciously to all, distinctively to those whom he has chosen as his beloved. He is sovereign Lord. In lesson 3, verse 20, he will delegate his authority to these disciples. He will make other disciples. He will continue to this day. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Now, if you're reading along here, perhaps you see this statement and you're saying, I I don't um, see how this ties in quite so well because then we're going to get to the dismissal of the evil one, Judas. How does this fit in, this phrase here? Let's see if I can clarify a bit. At this point, verse 20, Jesus uses that phrase that we've heard before when he wants to emphasize a truth to his disciples. So this is very important. Truly, truly. Amen, amen. The importance of this lesson. Many, at this point, have rejected Jesus. He's going to have one more, an insider, who will betray him. Okay? This is a small group. Jesus did a good job in whittling down the crowd. He wouldn't make it so much in a megachurch today. Because <laughs> he sent most people away. Not interested in getting the crowd. He could get as big a crowd as he needed. But he whittles them away. And he, and he wants those in, to stay with him who truly follow him. Remember, he came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. But, but, some did. And to all that did receive, that's who he's communicating to. Those who did receive, that is, who believed in Jesus Christ, logically believe and receive the one who sent Jesus Christ. That's is the point. Which is who? It is the Father. He stresses the unity, once again, of the Father and the Son. And the exclusivity of the Son here. That no one is going to get to the Father, that is to God, apart from Jesus Christ. He will teach them this lesson again in chapter 14. That no one comes to the Father except through me. In 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
These disciples that are gathered around this inner circle will be commissioned to go forward and will be delegated with that message. He will tell them to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is a lesson that the disciples would need to pick up and proclaim. Peter, again, will do in Acts chapter 4 when he says there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a good message to tell Oprah Winfrey next time she says, what does it matter what you call him? He is Lord, that's why, because he is the I am. Because any other ideology, any other person will not bring you to God. It would lead you to darkness. And those that follow Christ today must also carry that very light to the nations, to all people. We're not trying to change people's cultural practices. We're preaching Christ. We're preaching Christ to change not the external behaviors, but the internal heart. It wouldn't be gracious to leave people in the dark when we have the light of life. And those who receive you, beloved, it isn't they're receiving, oh, well, your excellent presentation, your great wisdom, your great winsome way, all your service that you do to to make everybody happy. No, they're receiving Jesus Christ, which is a miraculous event. That's what he's saying. Those that will receive you, and there will be some, They will be receiving Jesus Christ. Lesson number four. Here you have this dismissal of the betrayer. Kind of close this this section out in John 13. Those who do not receive, they don't receive this message that you go forth and give. They're really not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus Christ. And here you get an insight into how Jesus feels about it. He's troubled in spirit, verse 21. Jesus, after saying these things, he was troubled in his spirit because absolutely guaranteed one of you will betray me. The rejection of life, of light, brings great dismay and grief to our Lord. Those who don't receive the light will be banished to utter darkness. God will give them up to their own lusts. Holy God will certainly vanquish the darkness, but it troubles him. And we've seen this expression before, that Jesus is troubled. 
the idea of a deep-seated agitation. He hates sin. He hates rebellion. And it grieves him that you don't want life. That you don't want life. That you will receive great judgment for rejecting Christ. Interesting here, he, he, he already knows that the scripture is going to be fulfilled. He already knows that Satan is going to fill this Judas's heart. He knows how all of this is going to work out. But never think of God in the cold terms of, oh, he doesn't care. He cares deeply, greatly. He is greatly compassionate. And, and this isn't just Jesus who feels this way. This is Jesus is God Almighty. We've already said it. This is the character of God. We find out more about the character of God expressed in Jesus, explained in Jesus, if you will. But the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel records God telling him this as I live, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why would you die, O house of Israel? And to everyone that will not receive him, that is what we proclaim and how we proclaim it. In great grief, in great trouble. Why would you die? God is of great compassion. The disciples, though, they're, they're confused at what's going on. Jesus, as he's teaching them, they don't quite get it. In fact, this statement here, one of you will betray me, verse 21, is confusing to them. Notice verse 22 they look at one another and they're uncertain. The synoptics help fill in some of the detail. I'll just read for you from Matthew 26. It says they were very sorrowful, is how Matthew explains it. And they began to, to say to one another, Is it I, Lord? By the way, I think that's a good response. Anytime you're challenged, ask. Is it I, Lord? Look in your heart. Don't be impetuous like Peter was and later did repent for it. Who said, oh, not me. I'll never do that. <laughs> Famous last words, isn't it? No, recognize that pride leads before destruction. And a hearty spirit before a fall. Take heed that you do not fall. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. By the way, John is introduced. I'm in John 13, if you're wondering back. John 13, 23, this disciple whom Jesus loved. John likes to describe himself that way. 
I can't tell you precisely why he does that. I think the reason is he recognizes the compassion that Christ has for him and can't imagine why Christ would have picked him out and loved him to the end, as it mentions in verse 2. And beloved, I hope that grasps you as well. I have no idea why I have been pulled out of the garbage heap and given the grace of God and his mercy and truly loved to the end because I'm not a lovable person. We, we think of John as a lovable. He was just as aggressive and, and boastful, if you will, to many degrees as Peter. Wasn't much different. He was a rough guy. But Jesus loved him and he's at the table. And Simon Peter, well, he gets his attention and says, Hey, why don't you ask Jesus who it is? Now that's an interesting insight. The Pope has to ask John. No, just joking. Peter asks John. And so, John asks, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, well, it's who I give the morsel of bread. And he gives that morsel to Judas. Now, at this point, if you're reading along here, it, it gets me a picture of, okay, it's so obvious. Here you have Peter asking John. John asks Jesus. Jesus says it is, and Jesus hands him this morsel. So why, why, why do they not get it? Why, why do they still not understand What's going on? Why are they still confused and clueless, as it says in verse 28 and 29? They think, well, no one knew why he said that to, to Judas to tell, tell him to go out. And they thought maybe they sent Judas out because he had the money to go buy something. Or to go help somebody. They don't get it. I think the picture is this. There's a lot of co commotion going on. A lot of talking going on around that table. This sharing thing. If your picture is. You know, oh he just pulled out as a great sign. And handed it to Judas. It wasn't that obvious. They were all sharing. They were eating together. Communing together. And they were still quite confused. Because the best guy in the room was Judas. And surely he wouldn't have been singled out for anything. But Judas gets it. They're all asking, is it I? And Judas, as Matthew records, says the same thing. And I think it is interesting that the others ask, is it I, Lord? And Judas's statement, was it I, Rabbi or teacher? Maybe a little less respectful. And Jesus says, as you said. Jesus knew. Verse 27 in our text then. It's a, it's a bit confusing. They don't quite get the full clear picture of what's going on. But Jesus knows. And when Judas has taken his morsel, probably Jesus gave them all a morsel. Remember, it's one who eats at my table, as quoted in Psalm 41. Satan enters him. And Jesus says, what you're doing, do quickly. 
This idea of Satan entering him has to do with control. Judas has been given over to the control of Satan. Satan is normally restrained by God, continually, even now. He desires to sift your soul like wheat as he will with Peter, and we'll get to that later. And what keeps Peter's soul being sifted like wheat is that Jesus prays for him. This is an example when Jesus does not pray for somebody. Satan does control him, and he goes out in his own rebellion, in his own choices. He says, well, I'll have this and that. And Jesus says, okay, I'll let you have that. Unrestrained. The disciples are clueless. As I mentioned, Judas leaves out. Why did he run away? Because he hated the light. Because his deeds were evil. It isn't Jesus causing him to run out into darkness. In fact, everything Jesus did should draw him to the light. But because he has an evil, rebellious heart, he runs from the light and he steps out into the night. That's verse 30. And it was night. John is not only recording the time of the evening, which it was, but in the phraseology he uses through his gospel in contrasting light and darkness, day and night, this again conveys this great picture as well. Spiritual darkness, the darkness of Judas' soul. What are the lessons that we can learn from his betrayal? I hope you would learn the distinctions in the love of God for Christ, for his beloved, his divine nature as he is indeed Lord, the commissioning of his saints to the authority of Christ to go out and preach the gospel even this day, and the ultimate damnation and destruction of sinners. Jesus gave fair warning to them and to us in 1235, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he is going. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that we would walk in the light of Christ this day. Warn others of the dark night. That they might see the light of your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment to think on these things where you're at even now.